Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 8, Out of Sight, from 1998. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Tobin Addington. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And what we were just saying before we started recording is, at least Tobin and I have only seen this movie once. I'm not sure how many times Mike has seen it. But, like, we don't know why we're not watching this movie, like, every week or every month. Like, it's so good and so fun. And even though it's two hours, it flies by. This movie's just wonderful. Yeah, no, and I have to correct you right away. I've, I've seen this movie a lot more than once. But I was oh. I was agreeing with you on the fact that as I watch oh, okay. it, I say, why don't I watch this every day? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm right there with you guys. I hadn't seen this movie for about 10 years, which is a sin. I don't know why it's not in constant rotation as well, but I was there in theaters. I actually had to drag two friends, two very good friends, mind you, to go see this. And afterwards, they uh, they apologized for being so stubborn and stupid and thanked me for, for making them see this movie. And uh, since I've seen it a bunch of times, but not in a while. So it was really good to watch it again. So when you're listening to this, this was months and months ago, but sort of recently as we're recording this, there was that thing floating around the internet of pick your favorite movie from each year you were alive. And I picked this movie for 98 sort of out of just like vague memories of really liking it. And also because 98, at least of what I've seen, was not a great year for movies, I don't think. And when my friend was looking at the list, she said, you have a Jennifer Lopez movie on your favorite movies list. And I was like, you need to see this movie because she is perfect in this movie. I mean, say what you want. I mean, I like I liked her music, you know, when I was in middle school or whenever she was on VH1 and MTV and whatever uh, on TRL. I like her as sort of like a personality, but I mean, she is so, so good in this movie. And everybody is so good in this movie in capturing the Elmore Leonard life force or whatever, uh, because all of like pretty much all of his books and movies and TV shows like Jackie Brown and Get Shorty and the Justified TV series and a whole bunch of other stuff, they all feel similar in that they feel real. And they're like perfect, like, you know, they're, they're movie characters, but they also feel like real people, and everybody embodies that, like, I think from top to bottom. Yeah, I think everyone's really putting on great performances here. Everyone's at the top of their game. I mean, not just Soderbergh as a director. I mean, you mentioned this movie is two hours, but it it flies by. The pace is perfect. It it moves around in time, but never gets confusing. Uh, J-Lo's great. You know, she was never, ever really on my radar, so, I mean, I was always confused as to why... You know, there was such a dislike to her and stuff, but like her movies like Made in Manhattan and things like they're just, you know, not my cup of tea. So I never had an impression of her, but I love her in this. It almost feels like this movie was like tailor made for her at times or her and Clooney. When you find out like we got them together, it's like, okay, let's do everything to uh, sort of accentuate what's great about these two. But somewhere between like Jackie Brown and Get Shorty for me, where it's got serious down to earth moments like Jackie Brown, but it also has sort of these dark comedic funny moments like Get Shorty which are just sort of these absurd situations you find yourself in and need to talk your way out of act your way out of just get yourself out of these criminal situations so yeah I was really uh, I'm really pleased with sort of like the balance of this movie all around I think that's why it works so well okay it's time for me to make a controversial statement uh oh I think this might be a perfect movie okay no I don't I don't I don't that's I mean no that's fine <laughs> well, I just I feel like as I'm watching it I'm and I've I've sort of always had this feeling with this movie like I don't know what I would change you know we we spend a lot of time on these podcasts talking about how we would change things or things we wish were different or and 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 not as you know every time a new scene comes up 
I think, oh, great, this scene. And then, you know, <laughs> and then a new flashback will come up and I'll say, oh, great, this flashback. There's never a moment in this movie that I'm not entirely with it. I don't think there's a performance in this movie that doesn't work. Down to the down to the, the bank teller in the opening scene, who's a, apparently a local actress that they found where they were shooting, like all the way up to the to the these movie stars who have probably never been better, and in some cases were never this good again. I, I just I this is you know I think there's a difference between a perfect movie and a capital G great movie. I think there are some you know great movies that aren't perfect, and perfect movies don't have to be great. But I wouldn't change a single thing about this movie. I think it might be it might be perfect i mean i have i have no disagreements there because i feel i feel like when you say the word not you specifically but like when people talk about perfect movies i think like i think perfect movie could be like a lot of different things like i'm not comparing this movie to that but like shoot 'em up is maybe like a perfect movie because like it's exactly what it wants right, to be you right, know what i mean like yes. there's it doesn't have to be a good right. movie it could be a bad movie but like if you are a hundred percent nailing what you want to nail, then it's perfect. Like there's nothing like exactly what you said. Like, so I think that there could be, I mean, in theory, every movie could be a perfect movie. I mean, that would be great. Wouldn't that be amazing? (laughs) But this is, but this is perfect, I think. But what's also kind of not scary per se, but interesting to think about is when we when we talk about all these different movies, I look on the IMDb trivia of like the movie that it almost was or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, Soderbergh didn't originally want to direct this. He had some other project he was trying to get going. And then the head of Universal, Casey Silver, called him and was just like, you should do this. He's like, I don't know. He's like, no, like you should do this. And he read the script. He liked the script. He wanted to work with George Clooney. And so like he convinced him he finally got the job. But like Soderbergh almost wasn't involved. Uh, and then after he got involved, they were close to casting Sandra Bullock as the lead and he said that they had really good chemistry which we would see later in Gravity but he felt it wasn't right for an Elmore Leonard movie mm. and then Catherine Keener who is perfect in her role here she was almost Karen Sisko she was almost a Jennifer Lopez part and so you know, there's all these like slight permutations yes. of like what could have right. been and I'm sure there's you know this is true of every movie but I'm sure there's way more for this movie that we don't even know about but those things that you can just sort of significantly alter what is otherwise, you know, there's no wrong choices here. And, and you just sort of like, it, it, it almost makes you appreciate not, not almost, it definitely makes you appreciate when a movie nails everything when you're like, well, Sandra Bullock is great but like, I don't know if she could do what Jennifer Lopez did. Yeah, you're right. There's a there's a real special alchemy to this movie. There's a special alchemy to the all the performances, not just working on their own, but working with one another, um, to the structure of it, to the way it's the way it's all put together, to the to the look of it, to the way the camera moves, the way it's the way it's edited with those freeze frames and all those things work so perfectly in sync that, that if you change one of them it might not it wouldn't maybe make it a bad movie. I'm sure, you know, Catherine Kinnear would be great as Karen Sisko. But but there's something there's something real there's a real sort of special magic that comes when all the elements seem to come together as as well as they did here. Yeah, the only actor throughout this who I thought maybe you could swap out was Steve Zahn for Sam Rockwell, only because he sounded Ooh. so much like Sam Rockwell. And they are sort of similar in style, I feel. But that was it, really. I mean, Albert Brooks is basically, I forgot he was in this movie until he had his toupee on. Like, I forgot he was the bald guy in prison, the sad sack. Don Cheadle, like, really scary in yeah, this. Yeah. I remember watching yeah. this and not knowing Don Cheadle and, you know, wondering if they got, like, a real criminal to play <laughs> his role or something. I was like, that guy is frightening. Yeah, especially, like, right now, as I'm watching The Wire, I'm like, he could really fit in with, like, that show. Like, that is, yeah. you know, and The Wire is maybe the best casting of criminals ever. And, like, Don Cheadle in this movie is right on par that. You're absolutely right. 
Yeah, and I mean, there's just like a whole vibe here that's working too. And I wonder what Soderbergh brought to this uh, might have been sort of the um, like the camera style, like not just the editing sort of freeze frames, but I noticed that it's shot almost like in that docu style. I mean, you see a lot of it now, not done this well. It's usually overdone, like over shaky handheld camera stuff. But here it's like it's almost like people are spying on the characters in the movie at times. Um, I don't know. I just got a really cool sense of how he shot the film it felt very on the fly it felt very fly on the wall uh, and and it just had like a really fun fresh sort of feel to it that fit this type of movie really well another thing he's responsible for in some ways is the is the structure of the movie so this is written by scott frank so he may be my favorite living screenwriter and he just wrote logan yeah, totally. Right. He works with James Mangold sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Soderbergh is producing his six-hour Western for Netflix called Godless, starring Jeff Daniels, which is going to come out next year. Oh, okay. That whole Logan Western connection and oh, totally. him being attached makes a lot more sense. Totally. I, yeah, I, I think, yeah. There's been some set photos coming out from that that are, that are pretty great. Anyway, so so he's he's with the writer in this movie from the very beginning, and he'd, he'd written Get Shorty, a, a known quantity as far as... Elmore Leonard stuff goes. And earlier in the process of developing it, he had this sort of nonlinear structure, this flashback structure. Not quite the way it is here, but it was, there were flashbacks involved. And then some point in the, along the way, Barry Sonnenfeld was going to direct it. And they took the flashbacks out and told the story straight, linear, A to B to C. And that's the version of the script that Soderbergh got. Okay. So there is a, a case to be made that Soderbergh reads that script and says to him, you know what? Do you have you ever thought about doing this non chronologically? And Scott Frank says, "As a matter of fact, I did." And then they, <laughs> you know, go back to that version. And if if that had not happened, it's entirely possible the straight ahead version would have landed in some director's lap who would have shot it that way, and it would have been fine. But it would not have anywhere near the sort of resonance and power. I think, as we remember from last week, Soderbergh's idea is right that every every movie starts with one basic aesthetic choice. And I think here that choice is to do, is to use the flashbacks to make this nonlinear structure, let, let the film sort of catch up with itself. And that then sort of feeds out into, into everything else in this movie. And I think that that's a, such a brilliant choice here. My goal before we talked about this, I wanted to read the novel because I'd never read the novel before. I only read the first 50 pages. So it's only like the first like sixth of it or whatever. I read it when I was in high school. So the book starts out with the prison break which we don't see for a little bit in this movie. And it sort of, you know, comes back, and it doesn't really come back and forth, but, like, that's where we get... But here in the beginning, there's a little bit before, like, him robbing the bank, which we never actually... Maybe it comes back later in the book, but, like, it's more action as opposed to just... Like, it seems like the, what's on screen is really closely adapted from the novel. Like, him, you know, watching the guys running around the track, him talking to them, him sort of alerting the guard, meeting the guard in the chapel, knocking the guard out, then escaping. Like, that's all pretty much beat for beat what happens in the novel. But that's what starts. Here, we get a little bit more excitement. We see him as this professional bank robber. I was also imagining, you know, you said, like, that perfect casting of that local bank teller. Like, can you imagine getting robbed by a guy as handsome no, as George no. Clooney? Like, just ha <laughs> just take take all my money. Like, here, I'm sorry. Like, here's all my money. But I like that jumping around. And, like, we, we get the flashback of, like, six weeks earlier, six weeks later, or two years earlier, or whatever and it does a great job of like perfectly at the right time and with the right amount filling in the backstory that you need to know 
And if you did everything chronologically, I feel like you wouldn't be into the action as much. And you also, it would be paced poorly, I think. Because by adding in those flashbacks, you add an excitement to like a place where you're sort of just moving the plot forward, kind of, right? Well, and you don't, you wouldn't get, apparently in that other draft, you didn't meet Karen, you didn't meet J-Lo for 30, oh. 35 minutes into the movie. So here you're getting her with her dad, you're sort of getting to know who she is, and there's some sort of, sort of understanding of who they are when they end up in the trunk together, which is kind of the, the big moment early in the movie. And I think that that's, that's those sort of decisions are sort of, are, are pretty, pretty vital here. We should say just very briefly, it proposes people who have not seen the movie, that it follows this bank robber played by George Clooney in and out of prison and and sort of then, then going on one last heist, that sort of traditional thing. And he falls for a federal marshal played by Jennifer Lopez. Uh, and they end up with this sort of like, they can't be together, but they'd like to be together, but maybe they are together, but they're not really together throughout the course of the movie as she's hunting him or not. So it sort of leaves that up in the air sometimes. But that's sort of then the movie is as much about them and about relationships and about um, deciding what to do with the second half of your life as it is about the action of, of robbing banks or whatever. Yeah, and I feel like that is the part of the story that's told in the present tense for the most part, right? Like, right, and I, right. And I think that's why maybe if this was told in more of a linear fashion, it would work less because we would lose a lot of that because I feel like we would spend too much time in prison. Right, like right. All the flashbacks are basically in prison and to space all that out really helps digest it. And also he does something interesting where he'll talk about a character in the present and then in the flashback we'll see a character like Steve Zahn show up and then we'll see him how they met in prison or you know we'll, yep. hear, we'll hear about Don Cheadle and then we'll see him so they do cool things like introduce characters uh, in, a, in a cool way in the flashbacks like they're used as a storytelling device you know he's actually revealing information that just would feel almost out of place if it was told straightforward uh, I don't recall from the book exactly what fashion it's told in back and forth uh, but I do like how he does clever things here too like color coding the jumpsuits in the different prisons to let you know which one you're in and so he's very good at um, keeping you oriented as he's jumping back and forth and all over the place another thing in terms of the structure we talked about on the King of the Hill episode how there was like that maybe non-linear editing. There was that great video essay, and we sort of talked about it in a few past episodes. That's going to come up a lot more in future movies. And I think it comes up, if I recall, I haven't seen it in a while, but I should remember because I've seen it so many times. Definitely it's similar to the yeah. Oceans movies. Yeah. And cause I, because I've only seen this movie once, and maybe I was just sort of soaking it in the first time, I really did not together how similar this is in look and feel to those movies mm -hmm. like it's mm -hmm. the same composer it sounds very similar uh it's got the same kind of playful attitude mm -hmm. i mean clooney is great in both obviously i kind of think that he's like almost the same character or very similar character <laughs> they're both you know they're both ro they're both thebes yeah, it's like a big warm-up to ocean yeah right, right. i mean because that's gonna be i think three years after this and so this is obviously the first of many George Clooney collaborations with him and Soderbergh but this movie feels like sort of like a prequel or like a sister movie or something to the Oceans movies in tone in style I mean if Oceans 11 was rated R instead of PG-13 I think it could be really even like way close to this but that's sort of like a more slightly more family friendly a little bit more fun caper than this but they're they're close and I just I love that 
Yeah, totally. The DNA is is here, right? This is the this is the seeds of all that to come. I think even if people did not know directors and you showed them this movie, that they would say, "Oh, that's like Ocean's Eleven. Like that, that would be a it would be be pretty clear. I think the relationship also between Soderbergh and Clooney is kind of fascinating, which begins at this movie. But the way I understand it is that it's been a while since I read or heard the commentary or whatever told taught me this, but that Soderbergh was really impressed with Clooney's notes as the dailies were coming in, as cuts were coming together. Right? He would say that Clooney's notes about the movie, his suggestions about how to change it or how to fix it, were like a producer's and were and were spot on. And he sort of he really valued his his opinion. And then Clooney has talked about how, and other act, other actors talk about this too, that Soderbergh broke him of some of his bad acting habits or his crutches. There's a thing that if you watch any old ER episode or a lot of Clooney before this, that he very often has this thing where he, he sort of puts his head down and looks over his eyebrows and smiles. It's like charming thing. I think anybody who spent any time in the 90s watching George Clooney knows knows that look. And this is a this is it's something that Soderbergh very definitively told him, don't do that, George. Just look. <laughs> just look. <laughs> and in this movie, you see from that opening scene, he just stands and looks. His eyes are open. You know, he's, he does that very little in here and retains all of the charm, but it changes his performance in some interesting ways. I think that they both are, sort of found something in one another that they liked. And then, so they, they then put together this production company company and, and all of Soderbergh's movies for the next, you know, 10 or 12 movies are made under this Section 8 banner, this the company that they that they formed together. And it produced other things with the movie Pleasantville and a bunch of other some indie movies that they that they made together. But anyway, it all, all sort of starts with this and, and opens up a really, really fertile period in both of their careers. Yeah, I remember around this time that Clooney wasn't really hitting too hard as a box office star, like I think he had that Nicole Kidman movie when they were chasing a nuke. He had some movie where he lost his kid with Michelle Pfeiffer in New York City. One Fine Day, yes. Mm-hmm. These all sound like Nicolas Cage movies. It was, I mean, he would have probably been better in them, but I just remember Dust Till Dawn was not like a mainstream success, but it was very popular in my circle. Uh, we love that movie. But oh, actually, real, real quick real quick aside, sorry about it, from Dust Till Dawn. The mug shot of Clooney on the front of the newspaper is of Seth Gecko from, from Dust Till Dawn. So they just took that from oh, that movie funny. and stuck it in here. Yes, so. Funny. I mean, he's really good at playing really nice bad guys. <laughs> There's something about his his charm that that adapts well into being like a bank robber or a thief or something like that too. But I really feel like he was almost not like he was never going to be he was never going to not make another movie again, but as far as making another good movie, I feel like this was almost like um pulling him back and saying like no like Clooney is viable like Clooney you know is a is is a true movie star like he just needed the right usher to to help him like get there and I feel like Soderbergh really elevated him to that level to show like everyone else like oh yeah Clooney like deserves to be there he's not just uh getting by on his looks or anything well I read one thing that said Clooney was attracted to this role because when he was little, he always admired, like in, in Thief and Heist movies, he always admired the bank robbers. And he always wanted to play those roles where like you root for the bad guy and you want the bad guy to get away. And so I think that comes across perfectly here. And also in the Oceans movies that like, yeah, he's he's on the wrong side of the law both times, but like, God damn it, he's charming and like you have to root for him. Yeah, he's the perfect man. Foley is the perfect guy. I mean, he combines sort of goofiness with sexiness, with with street smarts, with some cunning, with some idealism. And I, I don't know, I, I, but without, all of it without being too much. This character, and then you're totally right to say that Danny Ocean could be the pseudonym. Maybe that's who he becomes after he 
escapes in the end Ooh, of this movie with, with Samuel L. Jackson at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's maybe that. There's a whole thread here we're going to going to discover as we go along. And Don Cheadle's character has a twin <laughs> brother who was raised in England. Who knows? But but you can you can definitely see how for what Soderbergh offered Clooney was a chance to get some cred because Soderbergh is this art house darling director, and then Clooney offers Soderbergh uh, some star power, and together they make their first movie that is both sort of critically lauded and financially successful in a while. So it sort of jumpstarts them both in a way. They, sort of, they both get something very, very good out of it and sort of allows them to continue in, in as you say, this new, tra- new trajectory, right? Like Soderbergh had not made a studio movie that had been very successful uh, before this. And Clooney had been making these the peacemaker one fine day and he'd been trying to find himself as a as a movie star after having been a tv star and then and then you know leaving tv for for movies and not having you know and had, having had some some real trouble with it and i think this sort of revitalized both of them so this movie was made for 49 million dollars and it made worldwide like 77 so i mean it made money probably i mean it didn't make a ton of money but considering the underneath cost a couple million and like Schizopolis cost a quarter of a million dollars to make or whatever. I mean, this was a big movie and probably made money and definitely kickstarted both their careers. And on, and on DVD, it came out in the, in the height. I think I said last time, this is the first DVD I bought. Uh, and and it, it came out at the height of DVDs. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but my memory is that it would have made about that back on DVD. It made a ton of money on DVD. Well, that's good. That's That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, my copy is from back, way back, when it first came out, too, on DVDs. Yeah, I've had it ever since then, sitting on the shelf. He also, Soderbergh had this thing that, it's it's not exactly what you're talking about, but he had a quote that said, it doesn't seem greedy to make a movie once every nine years that people show up to go see. If I'm the cinematic equivalent of The Locust, it seems like I'm coming up on the time. And if so, that's great, because then I'll be able to coast for another eight years and make some more interesting movies. And so I do like that he's even self-aware that, I mean, he knows that these last five or six movies or whatever we've done since Sex Lies have made no money. I mean, they really, in the end, haven't cost money. Like, he's probably broken even or, you know, even if not, he knows that the amounts that these studios are paying for these movies are insignificant. Like, it doesn't matter. But here is finally another movie that people are actually interested in. And, you know, between now and Oceans, like, we keep talking about Oceans, but we have The Limey and Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. And Traffic is going to be, you know, a best picture and Aaron Brockovich is a big movie. And, like, so he's he's not going to go another eight years of coasting. He's going to, like, stay in, for the most part, like, stay in this, like, Hollywood but, like, still fun Hollywood. Yeah. Like, like, a movie that's fun to make and also fun to see. Yeah, I always find that he has this amazing ability to be, like, so practical. Like, his outlook is just, like, he's not, like, delusional <laughs> at all about what he does. It just feels to me like he understands, like, his his own position. He likes making, like, all kinds of movies, but realizes, like, it's a job. And to, in order to sort of um, play around in, in that field, you have to, you know, please your boss every once in a while. And I think what ends up happening is that his sensibilities with that sort of idea of I'm I've got this time to coast, I'm free to do what I want and explore, is sort of going to align with the, what the studio is looking for, or at least catches the studio's attention in a way where they're like, uh, well, Aaron Brockovich, like, what? Like, you know, you want to do this about, like, small town poison water, but Julia Roberts, and, you know, it just, it becomes a performance piece, and, and it becomes a mainstream success, and then he goes on to traffic. It's just interesting how it seems like mentally he's, like, free of certain shackles of doubt 
to a degree when he puts himself in a mindset of like, okay, out of sight will get me some time to explore. And then that freedom in his exploration, he'll find things that make a lot of money or will become successes and won't become like the next Kafka or something like that. This movie, for lack of a better word, is very sexy. Entertainment Weekly named this the sexiest movie of all time. Wow. In November 2008, so it wasn't like a recent thing, like it was 10 years after this came out, they named it the sexiest movie ever. And number two was His Girl Friday from 1940. So, Mm. you know, you have to go 58 years in between. Also, Movie Phone, that same year, I don't know what 2008 was doing like with like (laughs) sexy lists, but Movie Phone that same year ranked the top 25 sexiest movie couples. And this is number four. And just like thinking about that, thinking back to the movie, like there's that one scene where they're at the bar and Clooney is with Ving Rhames and and the whole, all the, you know, marshals are after them and they're going up to his his hotel room and they just miss him in the elevator and then like he sees Jennifer Lopez in the lobby and waves to her and then like she goes back to the hotel and he goes there and like there's all those in from out of town businessmen hitting on her because she's a beautiful woman drinking alone and then I just think like Clooney shows up and it's just like how is Adam from wherever bumfuck <laughs> like gonna ever compete with George Clooney he just like shows up and what I also love and I, I know I'm sort of all over the place but there's a few things there's probably many things things I just didn't even like make a note of but there's a few things at least that are like set up early in the movie that pay off later. Like for the one thing is when they're in prison, they find out about the fish and then the uncut diamonds are in the fish tank. Or here, like we see Clooney playing with his lighter and playing with his lighter and playing with his lighter. And then we have him go up to the table that she's sitting at. And we don't see who it is, even though we know who it is, but we just see him like flicking his lighter. And like, that's such a perfect, like equating that action or that item with that character. And it's like, that is, we, we know that person. Yeah, I was uh, I was a smoker at the time of this, and I definitely went out and like, got a Zippo and thought it was George Clooney <laughs> for a couple weeks, and then uh, when that ran out of fuel, I don't think it, I think it just went on the in the drawer somewhere. Yeah, this is a really sexy movie, and what's interesting is about is that the actual love scene in the movie between the two of them starts in the hotel, as you're saying, in the hotel bar, and they're just they're sort of playing characters, right? They're pretending they're they're Celeste and. Is it Gary? Is Celeste? Is that what they're? They come up with fake names for one another. They introduce yeah, yeah, themselves, yep. and the, and it's so beautifully cut that partway through that conversation, we start getting cuts of them returning to to her hotel room, and then back to the conversation, and then back to them in the hotel room as they start to move toward the bed and everything. And she touches, you know, puts a hand on her thigh, and then back to put him putting her hand, his hand on her glass in the uh, in the bar. And so you end up with this like their flirtation sort of folds in with the act itself, and then. There's this great pair of shots, a medium shot of him and a medium shot of her as they're taking off their clothes across the bed from one another. They're both just so they're beautiful. Be- like both. <laughs> they're, they're beautiful, but also, they're also being funny. They're, they're, they, they seem a little uncomfortable, not in a bad way, but like, we've never done this before. Like, these characters are going to have sex for the first time. And like, that that's an awkward feeling. Is Awkward maybe is more than uncomfortable is a, is a better word. And then it, equal parts erotic. And they're not showing a ton of skin, you know? Like, this is not a sex scene that involves naked bodies flailing around. But I think because of who the characters have been and how charming the actors are, and then the way this scene is cut together with this, with, you know, sexy music and the and the digital snow falling outside, and then and then intercut with the flirting scene, and we've wanted them to get together the whole movie, like we've been waiting for this the whole movie, and and then so when it finally happens, it's it's adult, it's funny, it's it's erotic, it's awkward, it's it can be all of those things together, and you don't often find, I think, in American studio movies, sex portrayed both so positively and so realistically. And I think that that makes it 
to my mind, even sexier than something that's sort of perfectly lit and it's just like, you know, boobs flying around or whatever. Like this really, I think this this gets at something very real, which I think makes it sort of stick stick in my mind anyway. And it's also just, like you said, it's super funny that like the next morning when they wake up, and she's getting dressed and he like pats the bed for her to come back and she just doesn't come back it's like how are you gonna turn him down (laughs) but what i think is i'm pretty sure this is true i read this on imdb i didn't read this out of soderbergh's mouth but supposedly the first scene he shot and also the audition for j-lo like the the screen test was that trunk scene and so they apparently all from imdb trivia so i don't know if this is right but it feels right it was sort of like a casting couch situation that Jennifer Lopez even made jokes about that, that like they were at Clooney's house and they laid down on one of his couches and like did that scene to see what their chemistry was like. And so that was, I guess how she got the job. And then he shot that first to have this like forced intimacy because they do like, they kind of fall in love there. I fall in love with both of them there. I just, I'm, I'm smiling that entire scene because you can read it. Like that's part of the thing that I read in the novel is that scene. And like, it's so good in the book, but then to see them bring it to life like it's she's smiling and he can't see that she's smiling but they're just like talking about old movies and like they, they they're just so in sync with each other and he's like you know if I, if we met another way you know and she's putting him down but like she's also thinking like yeah you're right like they're just perfect and like that whole scene is amazing like their whole relationship throughout even to the end when she gives him the lighter and then hooks him up with samuel jackson who has escaped from nine prisons or whatever that like we're gonna get out because i'm gonna chase you down but like we can have another one night like what's what's two years in prison if like we can have one more night together like they're both okay with that it's just beautiful i like about that trunk scene is like it's really well shot for like a confined space too and that's intimate and sexy with the grease and the dirt on her legs and the close quarters and and all that kind of stuff but what i feel from it is they just get each other like they just instantly get each other like the same sense of humor same pop culture references they even talk about a movie where they thought it was a little unbelievable how quickly the two leads fell in love (laughs) you know and that's almost just like a a nod to the audience saying you know you get it like you're just supposed to believe that they fall in love at first sight like you know it's a movie so yeah that that's maybe my favorite scene in the movie. I mean, that is the scene of the movie to me, to be honest. Like, if you're going to say Absolutely. watch one scene, check that one out. So the interesting thing about that scene, which is – this is no surprise if you've listened to the commentary or watched any of the making of, but they the first time they shot that scene, they Soderbergh's idea was to do that scene all in one take. And so it was. It was them one shot – on the two of them doing the entire 11-page scene and apparently stopped stop the movie dead. Like, it just... They were great in it, but the, because the camera didn't cut anywhere, it just sort of tanked a hole in the movie because that's then... Suddenly that's, you know, that's a big percentage of your movie. Because it's a, it's a long scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had to go back and, and reshoot it. That's the, the one main reshoot that they did for the scene is to, is to shoot, uh, shoot a whole new, you know, whole new version of it and, and to be able to cut it all up. And the other thing is that the movie that they talk about in there is Three Days of the Condor, the Sidney Pollack movie with Robert Redford and uh, Faye Dunaway, which I have beat the drum on this and other podcasts with you guys for months now. So I urge you both to see it because it's very good. But in that movie, Robert Redford is is sort of on the run and needs a car. And so he carjacks her, like he steals her car. So he's got her at gunpoint and makes her drive to her house and then spends the night with her there. And because he's, he's a good guy, but he's on the run from like, the hitman or whatever, CIA hitman. So it ends up being, it is a really mirror to this movie in a lot of ways, except that in that case, he's not a criminal, uh, and whereas Clooney is. But anyway, you're right, that scene 
just sets everything up for them in the movie. And I would sort of love and hate to see a version of the movie with that long take in it. I just think this works so well. The cutting to the close-ups of his hands on her hips and to the outside of the trunk and sort of, you get the sense that it's a long drive without having it feel long. Um, and I think that it's, it ends up being very, very powerful. And what I also like as a sort of a meta moment is that already at this point in Soderbergh's career he had met with Sidney Pollack and sort of impressed Sidney Pollack and like brought him in as a producer. I think it was on that The Last Ship, that movie about the Russian submarine that he really wanted to make and that sort of fell through. But I like that, you know, this sort of influential figure in his career. I don't remember if that's in the novel, because I remember they talked about Butch, like, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid a lot. Like, they talk about extended sort of in the novel. But I don't remember if Three is the Condor is in there, but I like that, you know, it's another Sidney Pollock sort of reference, I guess? Like, sort of linking him and Soderbergh together a little bit deeper. I think it's just another good understanding of the source material. Like, whatever they changed is negligible. Like, the only thing I can really tell from the book is the ending was is different like there are no diamonds the house is empty and they all get you know they get caught like people are still getting shot and dying but Foley gets caught the same way and and there's no scene at the end with the escort with sam jackson or anything but for the most part otherwise it's like a really strong adaptation and doesn't even it i don't know it just i think it's a testament to how well the original source material is written too is that on the page these characters are so well realized you can take them off the page and sort of change things, change ethnicities, change just certain little shifts and things, and it'll still work for the most part because the groundwork is so strong there. Did you guys catch that one moment? I didn't catch it until this time watching it, but I think it's when Karen is recovering from her sort of escape from Glenn when she convinces Glenn to uh, drive away and they crash. And I think it's also when Michael Keaton shows up. It's during that scene. He shows up as Ray Nicolette from uh, From Jackie Brown. Brown. But her dad is talking about how that Karen sort of did this before in a way. She fell for a guy. She was seeing a guy and then found out that he was like robbing stuff and she had to shoot him in the leg and break up with him so like i don't know it just sort of this kind of not hidden but it's like this buried story about karen's past like a a line that's dropped about her that just reinforces her attraction to Clooney too it's like she is a federal marshal but she likes the bad guys is like part of what she's attracted to well that's what's great about like movies like I think of Shaun of the Dead where they basically give away the entire plot of the movie in that one conversation like if you're listening and paying attention know what's coming like this is all being laid out for you like we know that she's gonna fall in love with him and everything that's just like a little cool moment the Ray Nicolette character apparently was owned by Miramax because Jackie Brown had gone into production before this movie and so Universal might have had to like pay for the character I'm not exactly sure how all that works but Tarantino said no you can have him for free and so Michael Keaton came from Jackie Brown and did his character in this like for the one scene he's great just wearing that FBI shirt and you know he's asked like you know do you ever walk around with a shirt that just says undercover but he and Samuel Jackson both did their cameos in this movie for free so that's cool like I don't think because they were both in Jackie Brown so I guess you know just them sticking around although Samuel Jackson's a different character in this than he was in Jackie Brown right so not exactly not quite a shared universe I guess but again, was oh, was manufactured for the film though. Was sort of just put in there, you know. So in the novel, he's the Sam Jackson isn't. He still just plays one character in the Elmore Leonard written universe. 
Gotcha. Okay. I love this ending so much better than it what sounds like is the ending of the book. Amor Leonard endings are tough for me. I know what he's trying to do, and and I it works really well. I think, but I've never. I, I was always am looking for a little bit more of a happier ending, which I feel odd saying because I'm not usually a person who's looking for it. But the characters are often sort of you can see their fates coming, and there's nothing that can be done, and then it happens, and you're like, oh god, whether they live or die or get shot or whatever. But I, so I like I like this, and maybe because I've just built up such goodwill for these characters. I I don't mind that then you get this sort of like, oh, and here's this bank robber who's maybe going to set you free so that we can have a little more time together or, or whatever. I, I, I've always... I think I could see people looking at that scene and saying, "Okay, here's the scene that makes this not a perfect movie." But for me, I'm I'm glad they have that in there. Yeah, I think that what also makes it like a good adaptation is like they knew what to change and what not to change. You know, like they have that the the, the essence of everything is within that scene. It feels like something that could have been in the novel. You know, so it's not completely out of place or out of character. Uh, it's a nice just like an extra coda for you if you've read the book and then you go see the movie. It's like, oh, here's something. Um, not in the book that still works and, and expands the story in a way that you want it to as opposed to like leaving you on a cliffhanger that you wouldn't want like this is exactly the kind of ending like I feel like this film deserves mm-hmm. right? right like you're reading the book and you're like this book needs one more scene <laughs> yeah well that's what I like because I mean in Justified in the TV series I don't know if you guys have seen that or I don't know if you read the fire in the hole it's a short story that he wrote it's in this collection of short stories and at the end of the short story Boyd Crowder who like the whole short short story is like you know Raylan Givens who in the TV show is Timothy Oliphant is chasing this guy Boyd Crowder who is played by Walton Goggins the TV show and they used to dig coal together so they have like this shared history but they're on different sides of law sort of you know the same thing here like it's all about cops and criminals and all of elmore leonard stuff and in the short story raylan kills boyd like he shoots him in the chest and he dies but when they cast boyd for the tv series walton goggins was so good that they're like oh we're gonna have him live and he stayed he lived through the entire until the end of the series and because he's just so perfect and that's like another thing that like it feels real like i think in the show he had like a bible or something in his pocket and like the bullet hit the bible or something i don't remember it was it was something that you know fit into that world but i like that you know ability to sort of roll with the punches especially like when you have something like you know that elmore leonard would be okay with i think that it's like the end of this like you know the the final scene in this movie fits perfectly you know this character arc of Boyd and like Elmore Leonard worked with the people on Justified until Elmore Leonard died like it feels all part of the story and then like what's sort of weird is like they retrofitted it so like they wrote future Raylan stories or Elmore Leonard wrote future Raylan stories that Boyd's just alive in so like it sort of like changed the future to like fit the TV series or whatever but I like that like you can change things if they feel natural and here it does and I'm totally okay with that it's definitely organic to the story for sure. And what's other, another interesting moment in this movie is when everything shifts to Detroit. Halfway through this movie, we go to Detroit and the color palette changes. It, it We get a lot of this gunmetal blues and there's a great sequence of where we're introduced to the city for the first time and the, the, uh, a car is just driving around and we're sort of seeing the sights of the city and the, the pace feels different and uh, apparently that was like Soderbergh hanging out of a car just driving around and really cold day like <laughs> get, capturing shots But and the movie gets much more violent after that like it's not that by any means that there's been no violence before this people have been stabbed and like it's been people have been beaten but when you get past when you move past this and into Detroit and you get John Cheadle character 
you're outside of prison on the loose in the real world and his henchmen, Fatboy Bob and the Isaiah Washington character, who are like in their own ways sociopaths and things get like really, really dark. And I think that that's or not really, I shouldn't say really dark, but they get very, very dark. <laughs> and I think that it's it's a, a wonderful sort of way to remind us that like, even though this has been funny and there's a romance at the heart of this, like people could and will really get hurt and that the stakes are very high. Yeah, we are suddenly Glenn, right? Like, we are trapped in the backseat of the car with Snoop and his cohorts, and... Don't call him Snoop. Oh, yeah, it's Mad Dog. Well, <laughs> I guess he doesn't throw those fights anymore now that he's out. <laughs> but, you know, I said it before, like, Don Cheadle scares the shit out of me in this movie, and yeah. he doesn't really have to do all that much. He's just super, like, confident and imposing, and, like, the character just gets what he wants, you know? Like, he just assumes he owns any everything anyway he's like this is my car you find find a new car but it's <laughs> kind of funny because Soderbergh did something in that moment that I wasn't expecting to have happen which was empathize with Glenn like up until that point he's been treated as like you know a pain in the ass like a motor mouth guy who usually falls asleep at the wheel or whatever like he'll blow the heist and this is all his big idea is is to go rob Albert Brooks of all of his diamonds but he is quickly getting you know like bullied out of this entire score and and it's just funny in that moment where I, I feel for the guy <laughs> incredibly I am that guy guy in that back seat. I do not I want out of that car. Yeah, and it's still funny that scene is they're in the car and and Glenn doesn't know Steve Zahn doesn't know where they're going or what's going on and then he gets the idea they're gonna go like kill this it's a cross dresser is it a trans person is that who they're going to kill what are they i can't remember anyway they're, they're going to they're going to do some sort of like robbery homicide and they're like snoop or sorry mad dog uh don Cheadle pulls out this <laughs> bag of weapons and starts handing out like hatchets and, and shotguns and and then turns to glenn and says, which one do you want do you want the glock or the nine, or the nine? yeah yeah and that's a, and glenn's reaction to this is like what the hell is going on? And then when it gets into the scene where they actually kill the, the person in the house, it's it's shot in a very abstract, you know, you, you could just sort of stuck on Glenn's, a close-up of Glenn's face in slow motion as he's sort of watching this sort of horror show happen and losing his sunglasses and getting blood splattered on him. And it's not graphic, but it's terrifying and violent in, this, in the same way. Sort of like the way that the, that the sex scene evokes sex as opposed yeah. to showing it. This evokes the sort of terror and horror and violence in a way that makes it, I think, even more scary than if we'd actually seen it happen. Yeah, there's like a thing about that sex scene, which is almost like the conversation is the intercourse. And, yes, you know, yes. they're intercutting the actual sex over it. And I almost feel like they could have done the same thing with this scene and the murder, but they get close where it's like them talking about it is like, I feel like I'm seeing it. They're like passing out, you know, hacksaws and hatchets and guns and stuff. And they're like, we're going to go murder this guy with these things. And I'm just already picturing it in my head. I don't, I don't need to see it on screen yeah, yeah. happen. So when when we get it like from Glenn's dazed and confused point of view, like I, I feel like we, that's a, that's good because we've already seen it. Like Soderbergh has has made me visualize it without even knowing it, you know, or wanting to. And what I like further about that is that Steve Zahn really just can't catch a break. That, like, he tries to sneak out of the club, and then all of a sudden, Karen Sisko's in the back seat, like, catching him re-stealing that car. And it's such a great parallel, I guess, or opposite to Clooney, that, like, every time Clooney sees Jennifer Lopez, he's just, like... Like it's it's perfect. Like it's bliss. It's like it's love at first sight. And here, like he like Steve Zahn just can't catch a break. That he's just trying to get out 
of town or get out of the club or whatever and she's just there so like it's funny to see like how opposite their reactions are that like you know Clooney and Steve Zahn are not necessarily two sides of the same coin or they're not like enemies we, we see that like Steve Zahn irritates him a little bit at least with the sunglasses but I just I, I like that sort of parallel or that comparison or what have you between the two just with like what Jennifer Lopez means to each of them Totally. And as the movie moves into the second half and things get darker, everybody gets less funny. Not, which is not to say the movie isn't still funny and still in some ways very light in terms of having a light touch. Like it's not hitting these themes really hard. But it becomes much more about the prospect of death and aging and these choices that you make. And do you go back to prison or not? And Glenn stops being funny. I mean, he's still funny. There's a scene where, where he's running away from this meeting that Don Cheadle is having with Clooney and Ving Rhames. And he, he sort of sneaks into this car and is hotwiring it as Jennifer Lopez shows up and she says, you know, you're stealing this car. He says, I'm not stealing it. I can't steal it. I stole it last week, so I couldn't be stealing it now. And it's funny, but underneath that is this extreme desperation. Like he is just desperate to get away from this situation and these people. And that that's going to sort of play underneath the, the comedy. I don't remember from seeing this in the theater, but my guess is that people stop laughing out loud at this movie, but you still find it funny, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's still cool, <laughs> you know? Like, it might not be, like, funny, but, like, everything is still really cool, and it is fun to watch, even if it's not being hilarious anymore. But it's it set itself up, like, it's, it's already been funny enough for me, you know? I've already had enough laughs, I feel. Like, it's kind of cool that now, when we're in Detroit, we're going to get a bit more serious and focus on the actual crime, uh, and, and we're going to, they're going to do the sleep together scene so we have that happening and then most of the time they spend is in the actual uh the heist like actually robbing the mansion you know i feel like that's that third act is like mostly takes place in that house so it it is a two-hour movie it's not like they get right to it but it feels like we're here already you know we're already like we're jumping out of this truck and we're gonna go rob this house I made a note early on that Karen Sisko reminds me of Hit Girl from Kick-Ass, if Hit Girl grew up, because huh. they both like these, like, brutal weapons as birthday presents. Like, how many movies do you have? I mean, not to be stereotypically sexist, but I think that's also kind of the point of this. It's sort of like a gender-swapped, I think we talked about maybe last week, about, like, damsel in distress, you know, femme fatale is Clooney, sort of, and this hard-boiled detective is Jennifer Lopez. So I like, like, it's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's yeah. on display here. But, like, how many times in a movie... Do you see a girl like Hit Girl or a woman like Karen Sisko get a gun or ask for a weapon for her birthday? Like, you know, this birthday gift she gets is the Sig Sauer pistol or, you know... In Kick-Ass, Cage is talking about how, like, he's going to get her a pony or whatever stupid stuff. Or she's talking about, like, how she wants a pony, she wants a teddy bear or whatever. And then she's like, no, daddy, I'm just fucking with you. Like, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I could see Hit Girl sort of progressing down the line and becoming a Karen Sisko type when she's older. Yeah, I definitely feel like this movie is absolutely playing with gender roles and things like that. I mean, even Luis Guzman and and his boyfriend, you know, the two guys who planned the the whole uh, escape from jail. Like the first by first viewing, like I didn't really catch it, but this time definitely, I you know, I caught that they were gay together, but I it just kind of didn't occur to me watching it the first time and then even there's that shot of Clooney in the bathtub you know with a candle lit and that's something you would generally see like Jennifer Lopez do in a movie right like that's what you would expect but here we have the male lead uh, taking a, ba- a bubble bath and in walks Karen Sisko on him fully clothed you know so they do a lot of stuff with 
switching up the gender dominance throughout the whole movie. I mean, even just her being a uh, a federal agent and those ad exec guys like thinking that she's just you know that that she's upset because she had some big account and they were upset because a girl showed up you know just like she the, i feel like we get her perspective of sexism a lot more than other films because the girl is a very vital main character in the story and i also like that you know that the bubble bath scene is a sex dream of hers in the hospital and like she can't even have that like it's it's just i, I like that a little twist on it too yeah, the character she reminds me of is a, a little bit Clarice Starling. There's there's a little bit of, um, you know, a female federal agent who's sort of the movie's not about the sexism that she faces, but it but it presents it pretty clearly. And I and I think that that I think that that comes through here. They're they're, they're very different characters. They're sort of they they react differently, and the the movie around them is very different. But I think that there's a there's there's something of a, a they, they would have a lot to talk about if you could put the, those two together. <laughs> Oh, another little moment. There's so many like little moments in this movie that are perfect to use that word from the beginning that it reminded me of a scene from The Nice Guys, which I have to think is maybe like an homage to this, possibly. It's when Ving Rhames and Clooney are at that motel, I guess, and Clooney's like reading the newspaper, or maybe it's a house. I think it's a house, maybe. And Clooney's reading the newspaper by that balcony, and Ving Rhames like throws him <laughs> something, and Clooney just lets it go right by him. That like in The Nice Guys, when they're like in that shootout, Russell Crowe tosses Gosling his gun, and like it just goes right out the window. Like I just love that obliviousness that like you're in a moment, like you're in the middle of something, and not everybody is like a cool, calm, collected movie character that. Clooney is like reading about Karen, like thinking about Karen Sisko, whatever he's doing, maybe he's looking at her wallet and just doesn't even see anything come at him. So like, I just like little moments like that are just, you know, make me laugh out and, loud. And that's a moment that came up in rehearsal. That wasn't in the script. That's something that they did as they were oh. rehearsing the movie that then they kept for the movie. But you're totally right. It says so much about Clooney in that moment and about his fixation on her and, and his real humanity, you know, like he's just, everybody has to sort of coax it out of him that, that he's you know, infatuated with this woman and going to try and see her again. And, you know, there's this real charm that the two of them have with one another, a real love to add to the love stories in this movie. But you're right. That is a, that is a great part. And um, Soderbergh talks in the commentary about that always getting the biggest laugh of the first part of the movie, the first section of the movie outside of the Steve Zahn scenes. And you can see why. And then, like, there's another moment like that a little bit later when Karen Sisko is at Catherine Keener's place. And Catherine Keener, I don't think I've ever seen her in a movie up to this point. Like, she's not young. She's, like, 40 here, but she seems like a baby in this movie. Like, she looks so much younger than, like, everything I've seen her in since that I was like, oh, like, okay. But she's, I think, like, 39 or something? Or maybe she's either she's either 30 or 40. I think, like, she's older than she seems. But anyway, there's the scene where... Karen Sisko goes there to talk to her to try to find out where George Clooney is and Luis Guzman shows up and Karen Sisko says tell him he has to wait in the hallway because you have to get dressed and she says you have to wait in the hallway until you get dressed yeah and like she's just dumb like it's just a a dumb character and it made me laugh like it's just this little thing that she doesn't know like I understand she's nervous in the scene but like she's just so oblivious to like what's going on and it's just like little like lines like that and again perfect casting she just sells it you know another person that, that surprised me that I totally forgot was in this movie until I saw her again was Viola Davis who shows up as um, Isaiah Washington's, is she his sister or his girlfriend oh. or his oh, wife? Oh, I didn't even recognize yeah. her. Yeah, okay. she's going to be in three or four other Soderbergh movies and sort of Soderbergh-adjacent movies over the next stretch of things until she really gets a big part in Solaris. But she's great in this, you know, you can, it's always easy to, to in retrospect, see someone who's a, who's a, 
Oscar-winning actress now and look back and say, oh, of course she was so great in everything. But she really is. She's really great in that in that moment. Has just a few lines, but um, you know, but sells that part for sure. Yeah, that is just another really, I felt like a really threatening scene too, but nothing is really happening. Soderbergh just had a real ability to create tension. Like I, maybe it's just people aren't aware that Karen is an agent, you know? So you you're almost on edge because you know someone's going to read the situation incorrectly and test her and she can beat your ass you know basically which is what ends up happening in that scene like she's she's looking for Don Cheadle and you're right her relationship to Don Cheadle is very ambiguous the Viola Davis character I, I am not sure what's going on between the two of them maybe maybe I, I was wondering if she was living in the drug house for him you know was sort of like <laughs> living there and it was just one of yeah one of the places he hides stuff or something but then when that other guy shows up you know talking about like wrestling with the with the female dog you know like clearly euphemisms for like I'm about to sexually assault this girl <laughs> like she's coming around just knocking on doors and then he just gets like that nightstick and what I would assume would be like a broken arm it was just great the way he takes you through that beginning to end with like such a sense of relief when you come out of that of that house Oh, speaking of, I didn't know the Viola Davis, I mean, I didn't know she was in this movie to begin with, but I also didn't know she was in other ones. Another Soderbergh nexion? Berg nexion? <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, we're, We'll figure it out. Is the bank customer, I think it's the guy talking to the manager, the assistant manager, or the associate manager. Um, Even like that little like clarification, like, oh, no, I'm sorry, like the manager's not in, that's the associate manager. He's like, clean space, like, I don't care. Like you, like, you see that guy over there, right? That guy is Mike Malone. Credited for some reason as Elgin Marlowe, but he played T. Asimuth Schwitters, the Scientology guy in Schizopolis. Right, right. So, like, he's just like a Soderbergh friend. He's just like, hey, come on set for one day, meet George Clooney. You have one line. Like, he gets to touch you on the shoulder. Like, what's not to, what's not to like? <laughs> there are Schizopolis actors all through this movie. The guy who's the security guard at the prison who gets knocked out by Clooney with the pot of flowers, he was... Soderbergh's boss, who gives him the terrible writing assignment oh, yeah. in okay. yeah, in um, in Schizopolis. There are there are a lot of partly because they shot some of the movie in Louisiana, where they shot that movie. That was Louisiana, right? Where they shot, uh, yeah, yep. yep. So they're, they're back, they're, they're back near Baton Rouge or in Baton Rouge, and so he's getting some of those people together too for this movie, which is it's kind of fun to see those people show up. To date, when this movie came out, this is the only movie to ever feature two Batmen. Huh. Oh, Michael huh. Keaton. Yeah, they don't share the screen. No, but they also both share uh, a love interest in Jennifer Lopez, I guess. But now, I guess, with more Batman, like, you know, Christian Bale and Will Arnett Batman <laughs> and Ben Affleck. Like, there's there's probably way more movies with two Batman in it, but this was the first one. Elmore Leonard envisioned Jack Nicholson or Sean Connery as the George Clooney role? Yeah, he's much older. Not much older, but he is older in the novel. He's more like the age of Karen's dad, I would say. You know, she... Yeah, he's... I think he... They aged him down a little bit in the in the movie. And the last little note that I had was that in Brazil, this movie is called Irresistible Passion. <laughs> That's what I feel for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any other notes. I mean, I, I love this movie. I want to go watch it again right now. Like, I just... it. I, I want to remember how much I love this movie. And I think having talked about it for an hour and then we put this out and I re-listen to this episode, I will always hopefully remember how much I love Out of Sight because I love this movie. 
I am so glad. I'm so glad. I didn't. I thought you guys would like it, or that you know you had liked it. But I, I, I'm, I am glad this could to be just a gush fest about this movie. I clear, clearly <laughs> love this movie too. This is one that if you have the time, the commentary on is fantastic because it's Soderbergh and Scott Frank, the writer, and they talk all through the history of the, of the thing, and they you know they they break each other's balls and they talk about <laughs> they blame each other for stuff in in a very sort of you know take the piss out of each other way. You know, it's a, it's it's really charming and very very good. Soderbergh likes in his commentaries to have someone to talk to and not just be him and this is one of the one of the best as we go through these sort of movies i'm keeping a list of as i'm watching them my favorites from you know favorite most favorite to least yep. favorite and th- i'm just gonna lay the marker down now and say this is going to be hard to beat I- i'm not saying that it won't be or that it can't be there are things i haven't seen there are things that i haven't seen in a long time you know we have the oceans movies still to come i love aaron brockovich i was a big fan of traffic when it was out there, so i don't know but it's as I say, it's a perfect movie in my book, and it's going to be hard to beat. Yeah, it's my number one right now. I really wonder. I was watching as I was watching this movie. I was thinking about my list too, and I was just like, "Oh, like is Ocean's Eleven going to beat this?" Because I don't think anything else will. Who boy, it's gonna. <laughs> we're gonna find out in like three weeks. Yeah. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Oh, actually, and you know, by the time this comes out, we will, we will have recorded almost all the Soderbergh episodes, so you'll probably be able to go on Letterboxd and see our complete li- rankings if you want to have a preview of what we think of movies. So yes, yes, that's exciting. Question mark. Mike, do you have any other last thoughts about Out of Sight? Two quick ones. So eventually, at some point, there was a Karen Cisco TV show. Two thousand three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I never watched it i didn't i it wasn't i didn't really i just knew it existed but i never watched it but i thought that was kind of interesting that this character lived on uh, on television uh, and the other thing is that this movie introduced me to david holmes who did a lot of the music in this who will go on and do a lot of the music in the oceans movies and is just like a really interesting producer i just really i liked a lot of his stuff back when i was dj like he just really interesting break beats and really cool music and um yeah i really liked the music in this we didn't really mention it too much you know we go from throughout the movies we, he usually works with the same composer but i think he's kind of switched it up a little here uh, it sounds a little more groovier and a little less sort of simpler yeah mm-hmm. right it's perfect for this. The movie is the, the music is perfect to add one more thing to the to the perfect list Yep, and there's some uh, funky bass lines in here, too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, I mean, just watch this movie. If you've seen this movie already, watch it again. Watch it again after that. I don't have anything else to say. I mean, I love Justified, but I, I wonder... I feel like I have to give Justified the edge over this just because <sighs> it's six seasons. Just because it's six seasons, it's like 70 or 80 hours of Elmore Leonard as opposed to two, but, you know... Okay. I love them both. All right. Fair enough. There's room. There's room to love everything. We don't have to just... Love, there is room to love just, everything. Just love one. Does Ray Nicolette ever show up on Justified? As far as I know, that doesn't really cross over, I don't think. But that's definitely it's definitely worth watching. It was. I used to be on Amazon. I think it probably still is on Amazon. That's it's just it's great. So watch Justified. I, I like how and they even talk about this, like this is the third movie we mentioned both earlier, like Get Shorty and Jackie Brown, and this all came out between like ninety five and ninety eight, and they're all based on Elmore Leonard stories. They all have different tones, and they're all like sort of very different movies. And I just like that 
Elmer Leonard keeps having things adapted and they all can sort of, like they all feel similar, but they can also feel different. And I just love that. So for all things Cinemakers, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and see all the episodes that we've done, see all the other shows on the network and lots more fun stuff. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.